Hello and welcome to SCI TV. We are in for a real treat today. I'm joined by my often co-host, Ken Pendleton. Ken, how are you? I am doing well. I worked out in a gym today for the first time in 14 months. And I see, I see you are fully vaccinated then. And I am fully vaccinated and Trading Players is launching in 28 days. We'll probably do a podcast about that, I hope, before we launch. And other, other and so doing good. Congrats. It's great to see you. And our special guest today is Stephen Mandis, who is the author of What Happened to the USMNT, The Ugly Truth About the Beautiful Game. We are in for a great conversation. Those of you who know Ken know he's got a small affection for the sport of soccer, uh, as he will always say football. And uh, Stephen Mandis, who has done amazing work in the space, also wrote the, real, uh, the Real Madrid way. And welcome. So Stephen... Maybe you could launch us off on our conversation and talk a bit about what drove you to wrote this incredible book that looks at uh, the USMNT and what's going on there. Um, well, I had written a book called uh, What Happened to Syria, which is why the Italian League was so great in the 80s and 90s, and then why it declined in the 2000s and why I think there was going to be a revival. And then people started to contact me saying, well, why don't you write something about the U.S. soccer or U.S. soccer team, because why are you spending all this time in Italy? And I thought it was an interesting subject. And then as we got further into it, we started to find out that people had all types of opinions, but there wasn't actually a lot of data and research to back what many people believed was widely accepted conventional wisdom, as if it had been researched and documented. So it was an open space that was we thought was really exciting. And you talk a lot about, as you, you're trying to define some of this space, about the why, the how, and the who. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that framing? And then I know Ken has a lot of questions for you about some of the substance that we're going through here. Sure. So what we found was when the team uh, first qualified for the World Cup in, uh, in 1989, for the 1990 World Cup, the, the team was really had something to prove that their, their why was we wanna prove soccer in the United States is legitimate. That, that, that was kind of a common theme when we spoke to and interviewed many of the players and people involved. Um, and, and that was great. And there were, they considered themselves underdogs. So to put this in perspective in 1989, when they beat Trinidad Tobago to qualify, Trinidad Tobago had actually um, assigned the following day as a national holiday because they assumed that they would beat America and, and that they would be going to the World Cup. So like that was their level of, I would say, for lack of a better word, arrogance. Um, and that's how much the Americans were underdogs. Well, of course, the Americans win and get to go to the World Cup. And then all of a sudden, we see that in 2017, it's the Americans who are Trinidad Tobago trying to qualify for the World Cup. And there are these images of players being carried over the water floods on the field and there's all types of discussion about can you believe that you know we're playing in this type of arena and and all these other things and we're like wow now it's kind of flipped like the americans are the presumptive arrogant type attitude with with comedy music being played as the players are going on to the pitch and things like that and we're like wow what what happened between 89 being underdogs to 2017. And many of the people we interviewed used the word arrogant. And that's what we started to dive into. It, and so, yeah, and I, I think that's a fantastic symbol to bookend it, right? The, you know, the story that went in that, you know, that Sunday afternoon and, you know, the U.S. was 
almost no one watched the game and it was, they were, they, they, no one really cared whether they made the world cup. And even next year, there, there wasn't much interest in the world cup. And it was on TNT or TBS, I think it was TNT. Um, and then by 2017, you know, they had gone down there. And as you pointed out, and I didn't really know this till I read the book, but that the, the Trinidad and Tobagans, they were, they were offended by the way the U S carried on before the game and refusing to walk through puddles and yet this is right at the point at which we were about to have the most embarrassing collapse we've had ever considering the prestige, you know, where, where we saw ourselves as a country. Um, when in your mind, what was the conventional wisdom about what the trajectory of us soccer would be and what, you know, where, what did we, what did they, what did the fans, the USSF, et cetera, what, what did they get wrong in your mind? Well, what we, we saw was is in 2017, it wasn't about talent. So when people were telling us what went wrong in 2017, they were talking about identification and development of players, and this was the problem. Well, we then looked at the, the, the hex, which the United States finished fifth out of six teams. The United States had more players in MLS than any other country in the hex. The United States had more minutes being played in the top five leagues in Europe. So obviously there were Mexico has a very strong domestic league, but outside of that, the United States has more talent on paper than Costa Rica and Panama did. So to us, it wasn't really a development issue. There must have been something at a team issue. And everyone was focused on, on the team on the talent level or why we need to develop players in a different way. And we said, well, there's something else that's going on here. I mean, just to put in perspective, the United States going into 1994 World Cup had three wins and 23 losses against Mexico. Today, the United States has 16, since that time, 16 wins and 13 losses against Mexico. So obviously progress had been made, but what happened um, to sort of bring this underdog to arrogance? And what we discovered was that there was this hang, something hanging over the US since really 2002, but it even goes before, but accelerated in 2002, which was in order to be legitimate, to prove that we were a good at soccer in the United States, we needed to play like and be like European teams. And when we raised this with a lot of top people in soccer, they said, oh, I don't really believe that and, and everything else. Well, I'm like, well, I mean, it's, it's only natural. It's, I'm not trying to say it was a conscious decision. The last four World Cup winners are European, France, Germany, Spain, and Italy. All four also in the top five leagues in Europe, and we could talk about that later. But then you had the book of soccernomics that came out, and they had also said the United States should hire more European coaches, and so that was going to be a dominant thing. And then Spain was in 2010 with this beautiful tiki-taka, which was admired by many people as seen as the, as the highest level. But you also have to remember in, in 1998, the, the Soccer Federation hired a European coach to evaluate U.S. soccer with Project 2010, this idea that the United States could be a real competitive threat then. So they didn't hire a, a, a U.S. coach or they didn't hire an outsider. Um, they hired a European. And so this idea of Europe sort of emanates. And then when people also doubt us, we say, OK, well, the, the, the New York Cosmos, there wasn't the New York Cosmos FC or SC, or Real, or United. There was no such thing of that during the, during the North American Soccer League. It's now, in order to be legitimate, you have to have 
SC or sporting or Real as a part, like we're trying to tie ourselves to legitimacy. And I was like, every day when the MLS team goes on the pitch, they hold hands with little kids. Well, where do they get that idea from? From Europe. It's, it's just the legitimacy. Where do we, we never have supporter fan clubs at the NBA level, you know, for our basketball team, but we have them for our soccer team. Where did they, that idea came from? Uh, Sam's army came from the Scottish uh, army of their supporter clubs. So the more we started to adapt Europe, we felt like we were becoming more authentic. And then we started to say, Hey, you know what? The Europeans don't consider themselves underdogs. The Europeans don't play counterattacking football. And that's a general word to say Europeans, because that's a broad concept, but they play proactive, aggressive. And so all of a sudden we started to say, Hey, we want to act like, be like the Europeans. And that impacted the style of play, the players we chose, the team chemistry and all these things. Yeah. I, I guess uh, two things, one sort of my, you know, relatively minor, but I think part of the reason that people adapted to like SC, you know, soccer club or football club, or didn't go with, you know, as you point out, NASL, it was Fort Lauderdale strikers, Tampa Bay rowdies, New York Cosmos, etc. is that I think there was also a reaction to the fan experience Americans don't the soccer fans see in other American sports where the games are interrupted by commercials and the PA announcer and the cheerleaders and the scoreboard are all telling you what to do. And people wanted to have, they, they would see what the good part of what was going on in Europe or South America or, or, and go, we would like to have an experience like that. So I'm not sure that was meant to be something. Bring that up so that we thought the same thing. And then we did the research and we went to European basketball games. So you would think that they would be like, hey, we, the NBA is the, the best league in, in the world in basketball, has the best players in basketball. And if you ever go to a basketball game in Europe, you know what they, you know, you know what they do? They roll out the TIFO flags or whatever that is, okay? And, you, and there's flares going off. Well, they didn't take American like, hey, let's have these uh, light shows and um, right. cheerleaders and and uh, shooting T-shirts out of cannons into the fans. They took their own football and they put it into their own basketball. Right, but it doesn't follow from that that we would want to take what we do from football or basketball or baseball. We have two and a half minutes or three minutes between half innings. Yeah, but but when we but when we so what what we determined was why like in the NBA they have a certain protocol and everything else the Europeans now have the same commercials the same the halftime the same everything and they did not copy as much as what we did of the NBA with European soccer so they they developed their own players with their own unique style which we see today I mean. There's the Euro step. There's the um, the big man coming outside and shooting three pointers. Um, there's a whole different style that evolved out of Europe. They didn't try to play like Americans. They didn't hire American coaches in, in Europe for right. the most part. So that's what we were saying is why did America do the opposite? Right. And I, I guess I'm trying to, I would distinguish between why we, why things evolved from a, a playing, a playing and tactical point of view, which I think I, I, I totally understand why the Europeans felt a need to break with the way we develop basketball in this country. And, but on the other hand, why they didn't adapt our fan behaviors. Cause frankly, I, I think it's more passive experience. And I've seen some really good literature about Roma's fans, for example, that consciously see themselves reacting to liberal capitalism and what they see as the homogenization of culture. 
Now, I would say they take it too far um, with their con- with the confrontations, but they, I think there's a real feeling that there's something sort of bankrupt about the passive way in which American fans attend games largely, and that, that Europeans, South Americans, et cetera, are really uh, reluctant to embrace. Um, so, so, but the stylistic part, I think, you know, that's exactly right. But it's sort of my second bigger question for you is, isn't everybody playing European now? I mean, there used to be a distinctive sub-Saharan African style, but now you, you, since the goal to go play in Europe, you end up doing that. Even Brazilians, Argentinians, yeah. in order to be successful, they've had to Europeanize. So I don't really, I'm trying yeah, to figure out what's Yeah, the one thing that's ha- that has happened is, is that, um, and, and we mentioned this in the book, that in, in Brazil, the players had traditionally not gone to Europe um, for a long period of time. And then in the early 1990s, you started to see more and more players from Brazil go to Europe. But they, the average age, I think, at the 1994 World Cup of the players from Brazil, when they went to Europe, was aged like 24 to 26 years old. So they had grown up in their home academies. They had played in the Brazilian league. They, they had this sort of familiarity with each other. And today, the average Brazilian goes to Europe at age 18 to 19 years old that plays on the national team. And so now what you've had is, is when Pelé says what happened to Brazil's Ginga, I'm like, it got Europeanized because at 18 years old, they're off to uh, Europe. And then they say, hey, we don't want this showboating we don't want all this other stuff we want to play in this particular way so they're playing their development of 18 to 21 in europe but what's going to hurt brazil over time as well as argentina is is in europe the the rules are you can only have three non-europeans on a on a club um team or for the starting lineups or you know the the team that's uh named so they're they're not going to have a lot of players playing together but if you take Bayern Munich, they nine players from Bayern Munich's team will be on the Bayern Munich national team. And that's where the U.S., and this is one of the things that we think the U.S. is suffering in. Because if you go back to two, 1994, right, the team played in Mission Viejo all together, just like the 1980 Olympic hockey team. And, and then you had a few people that came from Europe into the team and get integrated. But there was this camaraderie there. Then by 2002... The United States had development academies. They were called the University of Virginia, UCLA, and IMG. And that was our Barcelona, Borussia Dortmund, and uh, Schalke. Um, and then that started to dissipate over time as well. So by you know when you look at uh, us competing as Germany, put the talent aside. The German team has 21 out of 23 players playing in the Bundesliga. Americans... We have nine different leagues represented in our group of players. Okay? And many of them have not, and none of them, are, I think one, there were one or two sets of teammates. So there was like two players from one team where in uh, Germany, you have seven players of the starting 11 came from two academies, Bruce Dortmund and I think mine's, I could be, or Schalke, I can't remember, one of, one of the two, which is, it just shows you that they grew up together knowing each other and everything else. And I think that's what got lost. If you look at France, which just won, the majority of the players basically came from the suburbs in Paris and Lyon, um, where the children of immigrants or immigrants themselves 
and then eventually started to play at Clairefontaine or at PSG or Monaco. MLS can't do that because they have something called the salary cap. So you're not going to have six players playing at the, in one MLS club. So it's, a, it's one of the other things that's happened over time. So Stephen, from your perspective, is the problem with adopting the European style, is it, is it so much about the style itself and the culture itself being a bad fit for Americans? Or is it, in fact, this idea of familiarity and that it puts us at a disadvantage in terms of we don't have that large infrastructure to support that style? It's, it's part familiarity and it's part just skill level. So the, the skill level in the United States has obviously gotten much better. But I, I, I'll tell you, like one of the interviews that we had, which we thought was compelling, was uh, we interviewed uh, Diego Simeone, who coaches Atletico Madrid. Um, and he has a lot of talented players. He has and he had Antoine Griezmann. He has Joao Felix. There's a lot of talent. Um, and we said, well, for club football, you want to have a lot of goals and highlights to attract fans and generate attention. So we said, well, why don't you try to score goals against Leganes and, and um, A-Bar and these other sort of like lower ranked clubs within La Liga. And then we understand why you play counter-attacking defensive against Real Madrid and Barcelona because you feel like you're outmanned and outgunned. And he said, if we try to do that, we will lose who we are, our identity. We have to play the same and that's what we found happened in the United States was that Jurgen Klinsmann or, or others started to say, hey, let's play proactive, progressive football to show our development against these certain CONCACAF countries. But everyone recognized we weren't good enough to beat the soccer powers like Belgium or something like that in the World Cup. So you have players playing two styles all the time. And you have to remember, these players don't play together very often. So it's very confusing for the players. The identity starts to get lost or confused. And so that's why we said, well, we, let's recognize, just like how Atletico Madrid recognizes, they're really good, but they're not as good as in talent-wise because they don't have the budget of talent to be with Real Madrid and Barcelona. But they play the same all the time. Hmm. Uh, so, so would you – I'm, I'm... – putting myself in the position of the head of the Brazilian Football Federation, the CBF. And if you were advising him, would you say, hey, you need to find a way to create a Clairefontaine in Brazil so that you find some way of creating that chemistry or else the European, what's going to happen is we're going to become so fragmented in our approach and our understanding of each other that we simply can't pull our teams together. Yeah, like I we, don't know. I don't know if they can create a Clairefontaine because the, of what's what because right now you have a lot of competitive teams and the way the structure right. is built in terms of the identification of players and everything it's possible but i don't know if it's probable yeah. but what they're focused on and i think that eventually the u.s will get there is many of the brazilian players have dual nationalities or even more so what happens is is a player arrives in um, spain or in portugal and they're able to get that citizenship which is incredibly important or they live in the country for a certain period of time so at real madrid for example there are more than three brazilians on real madrid's team but that's because players like marcelo have gotten a spanish passport um and so they're trying to build they would love to see more of their players in groups like that counter that is is when we interviewed some of the clubs some clubs are worried that they, if they have too many brazilians it's actually kind of a click in itself 
And so it impacts team dynamics because the Brazilian players will tend to hang out together, speak their language together, et cetera. That actually kind of reminded us a little bit of the U.S. challenges when you had the German Americans coming to the camps and speaking German together, having lunch together, hanging out together and what that does to the team chemistry. Yeah. Do you, do you know if, if in that process, they, they made a, a, an effort to make sure, for example, the Germans didn't room together? that they had to room with an, with someone who was- Yeah, you know. they try, so we did speak to them. So they tried to break it up and they tried to do things and switch roommates and make people sit in different ways. But it was, the, the, many things were would seem to us from their interviews to be relatively entrenched or difficult to break up um, hmm. just because it was the way that it was done. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you both, what, what is so unique about this sport that requires um, that- clarity in culture and style I'll, I'll play as a counter example in american football you've had the new england patriots dynasty for years where their style was actually to have many 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 styles and to game plan from match to match to figure out where the other side weakness is and how they can uh, pick on that weakness and emphasize their strengths but they could be anything anytime well that's a good what, question because yeah. we have the same exact question and this is what we learned. There's a difference between club football and national team football because of the number of uh, the amount of time you spend together. So if you're a coach, like when Greg Berthalter was playing from the back and had uh, sort of a possession-based style at Columbus Crew, well, first of all, he could identify the players that he wanted to and bring them in by transfers or whatever it was. And then he, every day he was a practice together and they had many matches together. And this is one thing to do. Well, now you take over the U S team. You, you don't get to pick which players are on your team. It is based on the eligibility and you have very limited time together. And so that's why having a consistent style makes sense. Cause when the players arrive at the camp, they know exactly what they're supposed to do. And if they arrive at the camp and they know the other players, it's even better. So just imagine when Germany arrives at camp and nine players are from, from uh, Bayern Munich. Well, what, what's the style of Germany? It can change because you have nine players from Bayern Munich. So whatever Bayern Munich's doing, they can sort of adapt. Or for Spain, they're like, okay, well, we have nine players. Well, seven played at Barcelona and two went to their academy, but we're not at Barcelona. So when they say, okay, well, let's play tiki-taka. That, that people are like, okay, I know what that means because I play in La Liga too. So I have to defend it too. So there's a familiarity. The U S is nothing like that, which is why you want to have a, a common uh, approach and identity and, and consistent uh, style of play. So in some ways, what you're talking about sounds much more like the importance of alignment in everyone coming together, these divergent pieces and being able to, to operate well, as opposed to, necessarily one style being so superior to another style. Yeah. And this was the one thing is, is everyone was like, Oh, but you know, America doesn't have, America's too large to have one style. We're like every, what we found was, is every country had multiple styles in, in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, just the city in the North, there's one type of style in the South. There's a different type of style because of the immigration that happened. So even in Brazil, like the 1994 team, which was Dunga, he came from an area that played a very physical defensive oriented game, even though we consider Brazil to be this ginga free flowing, beautiful game. That's not true. And then same thing in Spain, in Spain, you would think that everyone in Spain plays tiki taka. No, that's primarily a Barcelona philosophy. Real Madrid plays very differently. And, and so do other teams. 
Um, but the alignment, what got misaligned is, is this, like I said, you have people trying to impose a European ideas or thoughts or copycat clubs because people just were not happy with the, what the U.S. was. And I'm like, we should just be proud of who we are. And actually, soccer has a, a unique place in American sports because once we had the 1980 Olympic hockey team, America loved them. But in the late 1980s, you had professionalization of Olympic the athletes could become pros before they went to the Olympics. And we had the 1992 dream team, which everybody loved in America too, because America does admire excellence and, and those types of things. But then 1994 came along and America loved the 1994 underdogs of soccer. And that became the identity. They're the only national team that can actually be underdogs. Um, and that, that is their identity. So when they get away from that and say, no, we want to be more European or then that there's a, there's a, actually, I actually think they're getting away from why the fans really, the casual fan really admires them. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I thought, I mean, I thought that was a really interesting part of your thesis that there was a sort of the, the, there's an identification that's occurring with the fans with, the, with those qualities of sort of hard work playing for the team, being the underdog. And when there's drift from that, there's a, you know, it makes people feel disengaged in some way. Having said that, the dream for all of us who followed soccer for so long has always been that one day we would, we would be a world power. And I wanted to define it because you mentioned Greece. Greece won the Euro European championship in 2004 by playing a very defensive, organized style of play. That's never been the dream, though. The dream, the dream was not to have a good moment. The dream was to be able to year in, year out, produce soccer players that could, with our own style, that could compete with Spain, Italy, Germany, Brazil. And, we're, right. and, that, and anything short of that's not going to do. <laughs> yeah. What happened was, though, is, is I, I, we bring up the Greece example was because they played a defensive style and were able to beat soccer powers. America yeah. has the, the talent the same or a higher level of talent than Greece did. And so when people ask me, could, could America win the world cup? I'm like, well, I don't know. Greece won. And I, and we have more talented players playing in the top clubs than Greece does. So if we're willing to uh, accept this, the problem is, is people are like, I'm not willing to accept how Greece won because then we're not like somehow noble or great because we had to resort to this tactical midget of uh, counterattack and, and I, I laugh at that because I'm like, really? Because in 1776, the uh, Americans used uh, guerrilla tactics, which to me is counterattack football, to beat the British. They didn't try to beat the British being like and fighting like the British. They knew that was stupid. And so why, why would we do it? Because even though our talent has gotten much better and is not continuing to improve over recent, especially in recent years, I, I like we're, we're, trust me, uh, the, the city of Paris, just the city of Paris has generated 50 World Cup players. <laughs> so so why, why do we think that we're, we're going to be able to compete against the, that talent? No, and we can't. I mean, so first of all, there's only one sports miracle, and that's the, the, the Soviet, the U.S. beating the Soviets in hockey. All the others are actually explainable. But you know, considering that Soviet team beat Canada in Canada to win the world championship with a young Wayne Gretzky, by like eight to two or something like that the next year shows you what a astonishing accomplishment it was for her Brooks and his guys. Um, but the other thing is Greece, 
Greece, that's the only time a team parked the bus and won a major tournament. And so to think that that's a model. Not a major tournament, but I mean, you can go back to Turkey, which had a, had a run and uh, which they've gotten with semifinals. America hasn't. Um, That's true. But this isn't the goal. But the bigger point here is the goal isn't, there's a difference between beating your opponent and, and showing superiority to your opponent. And the goal is that you know, the, the word in aesthetic terms is to edify your opponent. And I, and I think I speak for a lot of soccer fans. I don't want to say I speak for all of them. The goal is to play edifying soccer where you define the sport like Brazil did in 70 or Holland did in 74 or Spain did in 2010. And, and that's, that's what it means to develop a unique style. And therefore the challenge is how do we develop that talent to do that? And then we'll, we can put the we have, we, have, we have the talent to, to do it. No, we don't. It's just they don't want to play the style. The United States has the talent, but we, have the talent. we don't have the talent to play a European style. And when I try to explain this to people, I'm like, let's think about this. In the Champions League, okay, so everyone's very excited about this crop of players which we have, which is which is amazing. I mean, they're really talented. They're very young, uh, et cetera. But just to put this in perspective, um, in tw- 2010, the United States had 12 players playing in the top five leagues in Europe, a total of 23,000 minutes. In 2020, we had eight players playing 13,000 minutes. So now these eight players may be playing at, at, at higher visibility clubs, like top clubs, but still at the end of the day, you have to play on the, you have to be on the pitch and, and get that experience and play. Right. And then I'll just put this also in perspective today. So this Champions League season, the United States ranks 25th in the number of players playing the Champions League. They had nine players. Okay. France, as a country, had 87 players playing in the Champions League. So Brazil has 66. Spain has 84. So we, we have enough players. So we have nine players playing at that level. Because if you have 87 players, you only can play 11. We have nine. So we're good enough to, to, to compete. But are we good enough to play head to head in a style similar to Spain with tiki taka possession based? I, I, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I had a fundamental question related to this: is you know even with that kind of improvement as you're demonstrating, how did we get arrogant? Like what? How did that happen? Because in order to be European, to, because the Europeans are like, yeah, we're we're really good. So they're like, okay, let's be like, so is, this goes back to like, even like an interview that Jurgen Klinsmann had. Jurgen Klinsmann said, we're not underdogs going into the 2014 World Cup. Well, the, the entire identity of the club is underdogs. Like what, what would possess us to believe that we're not underdogs going in any match? And people don't like that phrase to say that we're underdogs. Um, they think that that somehow um, implies like uh, that we can't win it. And I'm like, Okay, well, if you believe that, I'm like, the United States women team, they're underdogs and champions. And when people said, no, we're not, when we interviewed them, they said, oh, we're not underdogs. I was like, really? Because I was like, tell me who your biggest rival is. And I was, and they were sort of confused by that because they were like, well, I don't know, maybe it's Norway or Sweden or something. And I was like, no, it's not. It's the soccer federation and the establishment. You, the reason people root for one of the reasons why people root for the American women around the world is because they represent women looking for equality. They represent equal opportunity. 
And that's why people glob onto them. And they've done an incredible job of, of being great representatives of that. And then I say, well, what about Barcelona? They're like, well, they're not underdogs. I said, well, then you don't spend enough time in Spain. Because if you go to the games in, um, in Barcelona, you will see the signs come up saying freedom, you know, uh, liberty, you know, uh, they, they basically are the underdogs to the rivals of power, which is represented by Real Madrid, because Real Madrid is the establishment. Real Madrid is the capital of Spain, which they feel like oppressed them. So I'm like, they're, they, who wears UNICEF on their jersey? Barcelona. You ever see Cristiano Ronaldo, big and large? Lionel Messi, small, undersized. He's the underdog to Ronaldo. So it's, there's a lot of this. It doesn't mean that because you're an underdog, you can't be a champion. You've changed the meaning of the term though. You've gone from underdog is like an odd statement, which I haven't looked at the betting odds, but I suspect the U.S. Women's World Cup team was not an underdog. You know, they were an underdog in 1991. But not, so, but that's, as you pointed out in your book, that's, that's as they were still growing by 99 on. Right. But let's, you know, okay, but we're trying to win, the men are trying to win their first one. So okay. they say, like, you shouldn't compare us to the women. And I'm like, I, I agree. It's a flawed comparison. But yeah. let's look at this. The American women started college NCAA, the soccer championship started in 1982. The UEFA Women's Championship began in 1984 with 16 teams. Right. So we were just starting college to recognize college women's sports. They were playing national league level Euro championships in, right. around the same time. But so by 1991, how did the U.S. win the World Cup? They were not favored to win. And Anson Doran said, you know, I know something. We're going to play 3-4-3, which was unheard of at the time. And we're going to high press unheard of at the time. And I actually thought it was a genius move on, on his part because he said, we don't have the technical skill and the tactical acumen to compete against the top women's teams. And that's how they won. I actually think that Greg Berthalter may be doing something similar. So if you look at some of the more recent games, they're starting to implement a high press, which may be the modern version of the counterattack. Well, okay. So the, the I think you're right that it, 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 there was more. There was a club structure in Europe before we had a college structure in the U.S. But the college structure we erected after Title IX really started to take hold. Superseded the club structure in Europe as a developmental tool pretty quickly to the point where we 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 definitely had a developmental advantage over this. And the other thing, and I'm also, just looking at 1991. How did they win in 1991? Well, there's still, yeah, I was going to say a three, four, three helps us agree. The other thing that, and this is from talking to a lot of women, you know, people connected to women's college soccer, what Dorrance has done that was really remarkable is he convinced he, he brought out an aggression as you in a, in a competitive displays, which you touched on in your chapter in your book, that was just unprecedented. One of the coaches at, used to say, we tell our players to go in hard with their tackles or to do these things. He goes, he doesn't have to tell his players to do them. And you might remember a famous video about a decade ago where a player from um, New Mexico was pulling the hair of a player from BYU. And I asked the coach, what, what would have happened if that was in North Carolina? And he goes, on a quarter kick, someone would have elbowed her in the jaw. Like it would have been, a, he, he, and he did an unbelievable job inculcating a no prisoners concept that fit the personalities he had really well. So to your point about culture, he did a wonderful Wasn't job. That the culture in 1990 and 1994? Yeah. Yeah. The, if, yeah, the, in, um, in the, by the 91 team, he had already, he had already 
gotten this down in North Carolina. He had had three different generations of players that he had actually sort of worked out what he wanted to do here. And he, that team was half North Carolina players basically. Right. And, and so he had, he had a way to your point about clubs providing a culture. He had a paradigm that he could University of North Carolina, this gets such a familiarity of that culture, that identity. Yeah. 50% of the players that won in 1991 were from North Carolina. North Carolina was Barcelona's development academy. And that, that's one of the things we're trying to show. And so, in the, and then we, we look at the 1980 Olympic hockey men's team. Half the team came from the University of Minnesota, yeah. which is her Brooks. And there was an identity associated with that as well. And so what that, that showed familiarity and showed that there was an identity um, and a style that, that people bought into, a culture that people bought into. There was a core group of players like that. Right. And that's like, yeah, that's the question your book is raising for me, which is I thought that's why I asked about if you were the head of the CBF, I would feel like, oh, if, if you're right and you have to have, I would say there's two things you have to, you know, Greece is such an exception. Every team that's won a major European or world competition has had elite players playing at elite clubs, not just in the top five leagues, but they've had world-class players. And by world-class Germany might have five. It's a very select category. You have to have those kind of players playing at elite clubs. And then two, you, if you're right, you have to have a style that, that is consistent. If I was Brazil, I'd be going, oh no, or Argentina going, we can't, these kids are all leaving Boca and River so quickly or Flamingo and Sao Paulo so quickly that we can't actually keep them together to get the style we need to before they go off to Europe. Yeah, I mean, that's, an, that's one of the, I think one of the implications that's very important about what you're writing. Yeah, and that, that familiarity is incredibly important. That's why I look, look at the last four World Cups. They're all in the top five leagues. So you have a domestic league with a, with a, with a uh, dominant team in it that can hoard six to nine players from one of the – and that's your core group of players, and that's your style. Yeah. That's well, no accident. Well, I think with France, it's Claire Fontaine, though. It's not so much that PSG even produced that many players. Even, on the Even team. PSG and Monaco, I would say like most people, because even if you go back to Pelé's years, go, we, we went and studied that. There was a group that was from Rio and a group that was from Sao Paulo. And that was kind of their group. So right. you, it's not unusual to see two teams. like. Well, it wouldn't have been a problem in those days because you, you, they kept the, they, they were all in Brazil. It was until Pele left. I mean, very few players left Brazil. There some went to Italy in the late fifties, early sixties. But there was core groups of familiarity, right. which helped. Them. Right. Yeah. No. And they also were brought together for long periods of time, which they can't do anymore before the tournament. So they could actually gel. And that became because of the demands of the economic market, that became very difficult to do by the mid eighties. Right. And but so that was, at, but if you look at this counterattack style or defensive style, how did Portugal win the Euros uh, a few years ago? How, how did Brazil win 1994 World Cup? Yeah. They had really talented players, and they instilled in what many people would argue was an ugly defensive counterattack game. So it's not just Greece. Yeah. Okay? Other teams have implemented a similar style in order to get effective things. I don't, I don't know if they necessarily fitted their culture, but everyone bought into that style. Um, yeah, no, and they, and they excluded the players like Valdo and Rai either weren't in the squad or didn't get playing time, who would have been the traditional kind of fan, fan, fantasy player that Brazil would have done, whether that was a, you know, you, you, I think you, you mentioned in your book, there's a, there's a real belief in Brazil that people love the teams in the 80s, 
in the 90s team, they tolerate, and I, by the way, the Dungo quote's a classic when he faces the photographers. Um, I'll let people read that in the book. <laughs> it's very candid. Um, and, and, but you know, that gets back to my point. Are you trying to get a result or are you trying to define something? And to me, the goal of, is to try to define something. And, and people talk about the Dutch team in total football 10 times more than they talk about the German team that they beat in the final, that beat them in the final. And so it's not, it's not a result. It doesn't show up as a one, you know, as a win or loss or a trophy even, but it's something, there's something bigger going on. And that's what, to me, that's the goal for us soccer is to come up with some way of defining ourselves in a style of play that redefines the game for other countries like total football did. Yes. And we agree with that. We're just saying that that's going to come out of America, that that's, that people shouldn't be, people should embrace how we learn the game because we learn the game in these large parks and the way everyone else learns the game, as like I said, is street football, football in contained spaces. So you're going to have two very different styles just because of the approach. And we, we saw this in basketball in Europe. In basketball, people drive, moms or dads drive their kids to a basketball practice and drive them back. They don't pr primarily play in playgrounds in informal ways like how they do in soccer. So yeah. that's why they have a different style. So, But if you told the, the European basketball players to start playing like NBA players, it wouldn't make sense to them. It's not how they grew up playing. Yeah. So, so, so let me ask, as we start to, to pivot towards the end of this fantastic debate here, uh, what, what do we need to do uh, to move forward? What, what, who needs to be at the table to create this alignment that you're talking about around a dominant American style that supports the familiarity that you're highlighting is so important? And that lets this talent that you're highlighting shine through in a way that produces the results that I think we're, we're starting to expect, but hasn't really um, backed up the arrogance that's now been so problematic. So what we've learned is, is that it comes out of the development academies of their leagues. So to us, what is going to solve itself over time is the U.S. will have two to four uh, academy development academies, youth academies associated with the MLS that will have developed the majority of the players, that they will become the UCLA and University of Virginia that we used to have before. So if the, the MLS and the soccer federation need to make sure that they get together and that there are economic incentives to develop these players in these academies. Um, so that's, that is the way to get players with familiar and to improve the technical skill. So that, that's what needs to be there. The, the other thing that was holding America back was economic incentives. So the previous economic incentives were to get my child into a more selective college or a college scholarship. In 2019, it was switched that Americans could now accept, uh, or the MLS clubs could accept solidarity payments and training compensation. So every time a transfer fee is paid, not just the first time in, in continuation, that the academies that develop them get paid. So now there's actually the MLS clubs before would, the players wouldn't sign with them because they were like, I don't want to sign with you and then have you participate in my transfer fee in some way. Or they were like, I want to keep my options open for college or whatever it is. Now you're seeing, uh, now that that acceptance, the MLS is like, great. Because even if we don't sign the player, we're going to get paid um, by the, every time a transfer fee is paid. So that's an enormous thing. And I, and I do also want to touch on one other thing, which is there are things in the World Cup. It's very difficult to talk about um, what happens in the World Cup because it happens every four years. 
There's very few games and data points. So it's flawed from that perspective, but there are some unique things that we did find. And this just shows you the amount of luck that's involved in a World Cup, which was less than 10% of the teams that lose their first match in their group stage will advance to the knockout round. So in your group, if you happen to play the number one seed, you're, you are teamed up with the number one seed in there in your group. And, and even though you're the second best team, you play them first, you only have a 10% odd. So what we found was, is that teams oftentimes they'll, they'll lose and then the media gets on them. And then there's sort of team chemistry issues because they've worked their whole four years to get to this point. And then they press in their second game. And then often they lose, even though they were favored to win. Um, and so even getting a draw in your first game makes the odds of you advancing 50, 50. So that fair first game is incredibly important. Yeah, it's such an interesting perspective to hear about the importance of culture, the fragility of culture, if not supported by all these other prescriptions that you're putting out there. And I, I know this book is a fantastic book. I'm showing it for the folks at home. Uh, because if you remember those Samsonite luggage commercials where the gorilla would jump up and down and try and break it, uh, Ken is about as critical uh, a fan of an examination of uh, soccer and the dynamics at play here. And I see the passion in our conversation today and know that folks will get a ton out of reading this and be able to take this into the pub and have a healthy debate as well. So thank you so much for spending the time doing this research, putting this fantastic piece together. Thank you, Ken, for being um, an avid fan, an avid examiner of the sport as well, and asking Stephen the tough questions. And I appreciate both of you for getting on here and having this conversation for your folks to enjoy as well. Thank you. Thank you.